Hello and welcome to Design Tunk, which is all about design thinking and process. I'm Gareth Williamson. In this episode, I'll be speaking to Fred Seibert, who's the first creative director of MTV and the last president of Hanna-Barbera. He then spent 23 years at his own company, Fred Raider Studios. There he produced Adventure Time, which is one of Cartoon Network's most popular and influential shows. He recently launched a new production company called Fred Films. But before we get to that, I asked him to take me back to where it all began. So I'm 69 years old. And so my family happened to be one of the early families in my neighborhood to get television. So my first influences of any kind, aside from consumer products that you know were rolling around my house was television. And like a lot of people from my generation, I was addicted to television. Uh, I continue uh, to this day to be addicted to television. And so a lot of what I started to understand visually came from, you know, a black and white three by four set. And then the next big thing were album covers, because the way I got introduced into real pop culture was when the Beatles came to America in February of 1964. It happened that the album that was released at the same time was the American version of With the Beatles. It was called Meet the Beatles here in the US with the famous Robert Freeman photograph of them, three of them uh, up above in shadow and Ringo down below in shadow. And that was the beginning of my not just my pop music obsession, but the graphics that went along with them. In fact, there were probably times that I was more interested in the album covers than I was in the music, though they vied for my attention kind of equally. And those led me into other things like uh, Andy Warhol and you know, you know, many years later, Keith Haring and all that type of stuff. So the combination of traditional television, cartoons, album covers, then pop art that came from that, those were all of the pieces that went into my uh, fertile brain, as it were. So essentially all pop culture. Yeah, is, is I'm your a pop playground. culture. Yeah, I'm a pop culture guy. I thought I was a music guy for most of my life, but it turns out I'm a pop culture guy. Yeah, totally. After doing uh, college radio, you went to work for uh, MTV. Mm -hmm. Could you tell me about your time working with Frank Olinsky, your old neighbor? So Frank comes from uh, parents who are artists. He also has a younger sister who's an artist. I met him when I was four years old, when I moved into my um, neighborhood, you know, suburban house. And he was on the dirt hill in my backyard. And because he lived next door, we became friends, you know, even if we weren't supposed to be friends. And even at five years old, he's a year older than I am. He was an amazing artist. Uh, I don't know whether he just got it naturally from his parents or they helped him out, but I would go to his house and he was the only person I know that had model airplanes that were perfectly put together and painted. No extra glue, nothing dripping out the bottom. He was good That's and hard. smart, yeah, from the beginning. Um, and then when I was nine, the Flintstones came out and he started drawing the Flintstones and put, you know, started drawing them on sweatshirts and he would sell them to us because the sweatshirts cost him money. Um, 
And I know I tried myself to learn how to draw Fred Flintstone, which I did very, very badly. I did it once and, you know, never tried again. And then when we were uh, teenagers, because he was the year ahead of me, he was the guy that started introducing me to all the new pop music that was coming out. Like, because of him, I heard the monkeys for the first time. And because of him, I heard the who for the first time. And because of him, I heard the mothers of invention for the first time. And with him, it wasn't enough that he was listening to the records. He was creating visuals around them. So he created a statue of Frank Zappa when he was a senior in high school. And I just looked at it in amazement that anyone would even think to make a sculpture. So we remained friends. Um, and we both went to college in New York City. So we stayed in touch, you know, on occasion. And um, I was always, you know, in awe of Frank and his abilities and his talent. He went to art school. And when he got out of school a year ahead of me, I had already started a little record company with a friend of mine. And he was telling me that he was looking for a job. And I said, well, you know, the guy who does my photo stats, he um, also does graphic design for like, you know, diners and restaurants and they do menus and flyers. And I think he needs somebody. So I helped Frank get his first job out of college. Um, I then commissioned him to do one of the album covers for my record company that he did a beautiful illustration because at the time he was a great illustrator. And fast forward seven or eight years, I stumbled into the job of being the first creative director of MTV. And I went to my boss. I didn't know I was the creative director of MTV. I had a job. I was supposed to do the promos. When I got the job at MTV, I went to my boss and I said, well, who's going to do the logo? And he said, well, you know, our corporate department are idiots. So why don't you just do it? And I, I'm obviously not a designer of any kind, um, but I had had a girlfriend who was a graphic design student and had introduced me to the first person I knew was a designer, introduced me in a book to a guy called Milton Glaser. Um, yeah, very famous in New York for having done I Love New York, I Heart New York, you know, that thing. He had also done a lot of records for uh, a little independent record company in New York. And in his first monograph, he laid out how he went about doing all of his stuff. And I was just so amazed that he was the person I paid attention to. So when this logo thing came up, my first thought was maybe I'll go to Milton Glaser. Now he's, he was uh, 20 years older than I was. He was already famous. In fact, he just passed away at 91 years old, sadly. And I said, well, you know, if I go to Milton Glaser, he'll probably be really expensive. And I'll be really nervous to call him because he's famous. And, you know, my friend Frank loves music even more than I do and just started a little design firm. Why don't I ask him if he'll do it? So I called Frank and they said, oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. They didn't have any jobs. I think I was the first person to call them. And they had a little studio behind a Tai Chi studio. They were like in the storeroom of a Tai Chi studio in New York City. Yeah. And I went out and I um, explained to them what we were up to. 
And they said, yeah, 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 we, we'd be glad to do it. They didn't ask me how much I would pay them. And I didn't give them a deadline because launching the channel was like a year away. So we just started working together. In fact, they were angry at me for years because I ended up paying them so little for what became so famous, you know? How are and you the though? Yeah, exactly. And by the way, the other thing was I gave them a lot of work for several years afterwards, you know? So one way or the other worked out. And by the way, they became famous. So they started doing what Frank really wanted to do, which was album covers. So it all worked out in the end. I was a terrible client though, in that I think I made them go through 500 designs leading up to the M. And basically we had sort of kind of come up with something that we thought we liked before MTV was even named. It was originally gonna be called the music channel. And then in the middle of refining this design, uh, the, we came up with the MTV name, which was a terrible name. And whatever they did with the design didn't really work. So we just kept going. And finally, a few months before we went on the air, they came in with what turned out to be their final pile of uh, designs. Yeah. And I just went through all of them. No, 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 no. And at the end, there was a piece of tracing paper that had clearly been rumpled and then flattened out and put at the bottom. I was told, though they now deny it, that Frank didn't come up with this M and was so mad at the person who did that he crumpled it and threw it away and that she pulled it out of the garbage and threw it at the bottom of the pile. And as soon as I looked at it, I said, yes. It was the only thing that I said an absolute quick yes to in about a year. Frank then went and took it and took the TV that she had designed and spray painted it because uh, graffiti was a really big thing in New York at the time. And he sprayed it and let all the paint drip. And in the original design of the logo, there were actually paint drips in it. It's why the TV looks so weird on it. Yeah. And after going through a few corporate things, my boss approved it. Then the people above him killed it. Then the big boss forced me to go to famous people, even though I said, well, it'll cost us $50,000 to go to famous people just to say hello. And this only cost $3,000. And they said, well, you have the $50,000. You know, in corporations, they'll never give you the money to do the job to begin with, but they'll always give you more money to fix it. So I went to four well-known designers and I was so angry that they were trying to kill Manhattan Design, Frank's company's design, that I just gave, I did my first corporate weasel work, which is I gave every one of those famous designers bad direction so that they would do lousy work, uh, which they did. And then I brought it into the big boss. And the only thing he made me change in the original design is the typeface that said music television under the logo. And once we changed the typeface, he said, oh, that looks pretty good. And that was that. That year must have been painful. <laughs> well, you know, I was 28 years old. And first of all, I had never really had much of a corporate job before. The worst part of it is that the boss made us wear suits every day um, while we were doing crazy work, right? But it was exciting. You know, the, the truth is, so the company that owned MTV also owned something called the Movie Channel, which was a competitor to HBO. 
And the movie channel never did that well. And every piece of work I did, my boss told me that I couldn't do what I was doing because HBO doesn't do it or CBS doesn't do it or, you know, other people in television don't do it, which just annoyed me. So when he gave me the MTV job, I walked into his office and I said, you know, I don't really care if you don't like what I do and you, you just tell me you don't like it. But the one thing you can't do with MTV is tell me that I can't do it because someone else isn't doing it. He goes, why not? I said, well, nobody's doing what we do. Everything we're doing is new and original to us. So tell me you don't like it and kill it. That's fine. But as long as you don't compare it to anything else, I'm fine. And God bless him for the next few years that I worked there. He never killed anything because of a comparison to anyone else. We, we were able to develop our own vocabulary, literal vocabulary words and visual vocabulary even when we disagreed, like he wanted the original look of MTV to look like Star Wars. And I was much more influenced by things like cartoons. Yeah. And uh, I said, why do you want to look, why do you want to look like Star Wars? He goes, well, you know, it's cool. It's this, it's that. And the other thing I said, you know, this is 1980. Star Wars was 1977. We have to be ahead of the curve, not behind it. And he said, Fred, in New York, that might be ahead of the curve, but in the rest of America, it's still 1977. But then I told him how much it would cost to do things like Star Wars and that I wanted to do things in stop motion and claymation like Ardman does. Yeah. And I said, you know, the truth is no one does anything in stop motion anymore. So I'm going to be able to get them cheaper. And he says, okay, you can do that. And all of a sudden we started a visual vocabulary that had left television, you know, 25 years before. I don't even think it's shown up since, to be honest. Well, like, there's, there's, Ard been... there's Ardman, you know. I mean, yeah, they do advertising work, but a few days ago I was watching on repeat a bunch of old MTV ads from like 81 to 83. And it's just like, mm -hmm. it's another world. And I, I had seen all those when I was a kid because we did get MTV right. when I was a kid. Sure. And it's just, it, as you said, it's a different, different vocabulary. Um, yeah, well, you know, in reality, because album covers were so important to me, when I got the MTV job. So, you know, it's interesting when I was trying to zero in on what we would look like visually, I was taught my boss. So just to put it in perspective, I was 27, 28 years old. He was 25 years old and he was a very successful radio programmer and he only had one eye, you know, Probably so, great ears though. Well, you would think so. So anyway, I, I went to him and I said, so are we going to have jingles like in radio? He goes, oh, no, we're much cooler than that. I said, well, what are we going to do that's like us? He said, well, you know, you should animate the logo. I said, oh, okay, this is before we had a logo. And I said, so what are you thinking? And he goes, well, imagine this. There's a cow. There's like an animated cow. And all of a sudden, an axe comes and chops its head off. And, and the head falls to the ground and you see all these veins sticking out and it's bleeding. And all of a sudden the cow vomits and in the vomit is the logo. And I looked at him and went, oh, you mean I can do anything I want? He said, right. I said, well, look, here's what these animations are gonna be. They're gonna be the equivalent of our album covers because I wasn't a designer. 
I had nothing to do with album covers, but every time any album came, I could go into Tower Records or the Virgin Megastore and just flip through things for hours, just looking at all of the different ways people did them. I had already started buying books of, you know, the 100 greatest album covers and the hypnosis album covers and the album covers of the 50s. You know, I had everything. And so I realized that this was my chance to make that kind of stamp on the culture, but on the new culture, which was going to be this visual music culture. And that's why there's such a wide range of material, because that was just like the Beatles. You know, my view of it is every Beatles record that came out was a complete exploration past the last one. And so when we were doing these little 10 second uh, M logos, yeah. we decided we were going to be like that. Is every time out, we were going to do what didn't we do last time? From what I've read about your career, Fred, is that's generally how you've worked since day one. It's because of the Beatles. You know, I read very closely the very first authorized biography of the Beatles by Hunter Davies that came out, um, you know, in like 1968, 69 or something. And the thing, one of the things that struck me the most in reading it is when the Beatles discovered that they could be top of the pops and make great art at the same time. And it was, it wasn't just me, you know, anyone in my age bracket came up in that kind of renaissance era where experimentation could also be popular and that you know the more you reached out past the limits sometimes the more popular you could be you know like with the who's uh opera you know tommy opera opera you know or hey jude not being three minutes but being seven minutes you know that type of thing and so I took it as a natural thing that we could do this very popular thing. We knew that MTV would be popular. We, we programmed it to be popular. But all the way through its first few generations, everyone that worked at MTV said, okay, this is the popular stuff. Fine, we play Lionel Richie. Fine, we play Prince. What else are we gonna do? How do we go past that? How do we go out on the edge? and still keep it within the confines of what could be popular. And so we were always working those edges. And it was, you know, from my personal standpoint, it came because of, you know, what I learned through loving popular music through the 60s. From MTV, you then went and set up a company with Alan Goodman. Yep. Am I correct? Yeah. Uh, which is what fed Alan. Yep. And then... Um, Shortly after, you were asked to help with Nickelodeon first or Hanna-Barbera? Yeah. Nickelodeon was the bridge to Hanna-Barbera because I had never worked in kids' programs. I mean, I barely worked in television. You know, I'd only worked at MTV, but MTV owned Nickelodeon. My boss was asked to take over Nickelodeon, and it was really a business problem, which is that Nickelodeon at the time, I think, was in 40 million American homes and was the lowest rated cable network in America. It only had one show that anyone watched and everything else was what in the ratings game they call hash marks, a low measurable level. Oh. 
And Nickelodeon had lost what would be the equivalent of a few hundred million dollars in today's money. And the company just couldn't, you know, it was a startup. It was a corporate startup funded by a couple of big corporations and they were losing their patience. So now Nickelodeon, which had been all commercial free, was going to have commercials. But the problem was, since no kids were watching, how were they going to sell commercials? So my boss was given the assignment of fixing it. I had already quit, set up Fred Allen with uh, my partner, Alan Goodman, a college radio friend of mine. And he called us up and said, we need you to fix it. And I was like, what, what are you talking about? He goes, well, look, I fired everybody that I can fire. You know, there's a skeleton staff left. You have to figure out like how it's going to work. Now, uh, mind you, like I said, I had no idea really how television worked. I had barely worked in radio. And I didn't like kids programming at all. I was, you know, I was almost 30. I wasn't married. My partner wasn't married, though he was living with my sister. And at the time, I not only didn't know that I liked kids, whether I like kids or not, but I don't think I was ever going to like kids. You know, like, what do you think when you're still like footloose and fancy free, you know? I don't think of it at all. Right. But my business hadn't, we hadn't booked one job yet. We we hadn't earned any money. How long was the time when you're like still looking for work? About a year. Oh, wow. Yeah. We got a little thing here and there and stuff, but I had stupidly said, well, I'm never going to do anything. I'm not going to, you know, our reputation was all at MTV. Yeah. And I said, well, we're not going to take any of that music work. It never pays. You know, we need to take work that's going to pay us. So the first jobs that came in were all music oriented and I kind of pushed them away. So anyway, the Nickelodeon job came in, they paid us and we had no idea how to fix it. But we realized that the people who ran Nickelodeon had no idea how to make television. They had no idea how to program television. And luckily, I had come out of programming radio where I learned some of the tricks of the trade about how to build an audience, how to create loyalty with an audience. And so we just helped Nickelodeon not only reorganize itself, but how to think in basically in five minute, 10 minute, 15 minute segments, how do you build viewership across those segments? And then how do you keep them longer? Because, you know, one of the programming tricks, I guess, is if you have a viewer or a listener and you need to hang them on longer, if you don't hang them on longer, they never see the ad. So the whole trick is time spent viewing. Okay. And we not only reorganized how they put their programs on the air because they they had no money for new programs, you know, and they had no money for advertising. We reorganized how to tell the viewers what Nickelodeon was. Because in television in those days, well, even today, very few people explain what it is they're doing. Therefore, the audience can't come along with you. I don't know if you read Marvel comics when you were uh, younger. Yeah, when I was a kid. Right. So one of the things that made Marvel comics different than DC comics is that Stan Lee, the editor, wrote a letters column every week, every issue, 
he wrote a page that came from Stan Lee. And he would tell the stories he felt like telling about the creation of Marvel Comics, about their characters, about what was coming up. Nobody in television does that. I don't know if you watch Netflix at all, but Netflix yeah. tells you nothing about what it is. And at MTV, we had really created a system because since we didn't know what MTV was ever going to be every three minutes, we couldn't know ahead of time what was going to be on the air. So we had to find a way to tell people about what MTV was and how it worked. And so our little promos, instead of at eight o'clock, watch this show, it was MTV plays your favorite music. MTV plays new music too. MTV's on 24 hours a day when everybody else is on 12 hours a day. MTV's in stereo when everybody else is in mono. We were telling them stories about who we were, not what we were. And so at Nickelodeon, we started doing the same thing because in the States, the only children's programming that was on was four hours every Saturday morning. Everything else was programming for adults. Now Nickelodeon is on 14 hours a day, seven days a week. We wanted to explain to the audience who we were, what we stood for. And what happened was that six months after we started doing this, Nickelodeon became the number one cable network in America after having been the last rated cable network in America, which got us very involved in kids' television programming. That's where your love affair began. Well. I had always had the love affair. I just didn't know it because, you know, when you're, when you go from being watching cartoons when you're 10 years old to discovering uh, the Beatles and dating when you're 12 years old, you know, the one thing you do is you make sure you push away everything you liked as a kid. But in your head, it's still sitting there. So I still loved all of the kids' cartoons that I, I was in love with. So what Nickelodeon gave me a chance to do was revive that love. And interestingly, it introduced me to UK programming because Nickelodeon had no money. So it started licensing cartoons from the UK. The biggest ones were Bell and Sebastian and Danger Mouse. They were the most popular things on Nickelodeon. Huh. Um, so all of those things sort of brought me back into the swim of not being embarrassed to like kids programming. With Nickelodeon, you then did the What a Cartoon? Yeah, so what happened was one day the Nickelodeon people took me to breakfast and said, um, you know, Danger Mouse is getting too expensive. Every time we add another million viewers, they charge us more money. And it's getting expensive enough that we think we can make our own cartoons. I said, oh, gee, that's great. They said, what should we do? I said, why are you asking me? You're the head programmers here. They said, well, you do animation for us. I said, no, I take your logo and get an animator to wiggle it for 10 seconds. That's not cartoons. <laughs> they said, well, you're the only person we know. And so it turns out that I had read a book recently, right before that, about the history of cartoons. And it was about pretty much all I knew other than you know what I had watched when I was a kid. Yeah. And I started improvising for them how cartoons used to be made versus how they were made, you know, then in the 80s. Yeah. And they didn't quite listen to me and they took from our conversation something different. 
and went off on their merry way. And I was just angry that they didn't do exactly what I told them to do. And I was angry for like a couple of years. But in that couple of years, Alan and I decided to close the company. And when I announced that I was closing the company, Ted Turner's company, which had just bought the Hanna-Barbera studio, called me up. And they said, you know, you've had a lot of success with Nickelodeon. Hanna-Barbera is in a bad way. We bought the library, but we want to keep the studio. But they haven't had a hit in 10 years. Do you think you'd want to come and, you know, help fix it? And I was like, well, I don't know how to fix it. And they said, but you did all that great stuff for Nickelodeon. I said, I wiggled the logo for 10 seconds, you know. And they said, well, you know, it couldn't get worse. They haven't had a hit since the Smurfs in 1981. Why don't you give it a try? So I thought to myself for a little while, I was fighting with Alan all the time, but I, he had just eloped with my sister. So I knew I had to see him every holiday anyway. Um, I was really sick of my clients over at MTV and everywhere else. I hated having an agency. I liked the work, but I didn't like the client, you know, having clients tell me what to do. And I was getting divorced. So the idea of moving from New York to Los Angeles was very handy. I could get away from it all and start over. And, you know, that's one of the mythologies of California in the U.S., which is it's where you get to go to reinvent yourself. And that's literally what I did. I moved all my things to Los Angeles. The first time I walked in the Hanna-Barbera building, I was the president. I didn't know what the heck was going on in there. I didn't know what anyone did for a living. And I was scared to death. So much so that they give me Bill Hanna's old office. And it was so big that the desk looked like it could sleep a family of four. And I, for the first six months I was there, I was scared to sit behind the desk. I just sat on the couch in the office and had my meetings on the couch for six months because the whole thing intimidated me so much. But I had that breakfast I had done with Nickelodeon with that idea in my head, which was the greatest cartoons ever made were made in the 30s and 40s, to my mind. Yeah. And the way they did it was they would make a cartoon, put it in the movie theaters, and if people liked it, they'd make another one. So I had the idea that there was a way to do that in television where we could just make one cartoon at a time until we found the one that was great. I brought that idea to Hanna-Barbera. They all told me it was a stupid idea. So I fired the people who told me it was a stupid idea and brought in somebody who told me it was a great idea. And we went about doing that. What a cartoon. I convinced yeah. Ted Turner to give us the budget to make 48 short cartoons, which cost $9.6 million. And Ted was, well, wh why should I let you do that? You know, you haven't made anything successful here yet. And I said, Ted, don't you think if I did something 48 times, something good would come out of it? And Ted being a genius entrepreneur, but a nut, a crazy man, looked at me and said, that sounds right. Try it. <laughs> and so I got a budget to be able to make 48 cartoons. I put out one press release to the world. And 5,000 pitches came in for these 48 cartoons. All, all written pitches. My requirement for the pitch was that it had to be a loose storyboard of the entire cartoon. Okay. It couldn't be a script. Someone had convinced me 
that if you can't draw, you can't write, that animation is a unique medium that is driven by visual people, not by, you know, the, the way the guy explained it to me is he said, you know, in a Bugs Bunny cartoon, the bomb goes off. Yeah. He goes, you know, there's nothing funny about the way a bomb goes off. It's what does the bomb look like? Who's throwing it? What does it look like when it goes through the air? What's on Bugs Bunny's face when he catches it? How does it explode? And what does he look like after it explodes? But the writer writes, and the bomb explodes. Ha, ha, ha. So I insisted that it be a storyboard. My analogy was if Gareth told me that he's written the greatest love song in the world, I go, gee, that's really nice. Why don't you sing it to me before I would make a demo? <laughs> so I didn't understand why I would make a cartoon if somebody just told me there's a mouse and a cat and the cat wants to chase the mouse. I wouldn't know what that cartoon was. It was the way that Joe Barbera and Bill Hanna drew a storyboard for Tom and Jerry that made somebody do the cartoon. So the 5,000 pitches were all storyboards. That's an incredible amount of work. By the way, I've done, since then, I've done 250 shorts. It is an incredible amount of work. The last group of shorts that I did, we took 800 pitches to get 12 cartoons and it was one of the weakest group of cartoons I've done in a long time. It, that's how that's how life is. I mean, if you were to hear all the demos that went into the record company, you'd know how many crappy songs there are, too. It's a fair point. I mean, anybody can think they can sing a song, but very few people can sing a good song. After setting up Fred Raider Studios in 1997, Fred championed animated series like My Life as a Teenage Robot, Castlevania, Big and Puppycat, Costume Quest, and Adventure Time. In 2014, he launched a channel Federator Network on YouTube. His latest venture is Fred Films, which he told me didn't come about in the most conventional way. You know, ultimately, uh, the decision to start Fred Films came down to a series of bad business decisions I made, hmm. which um, meant that uh, I put Frederator in a lot of jeopardy financially. Oh. Um, as, as I was building out my YouTube business, I kept investing in it beyond its um, profitability. Um, and I eventually ran out of money. So I ended up uh, creating a new partnership that helped me raise some money. Um, but as the marketplace got um, stranger and stranger, you know, the, the media marketplace is in a little bit of chaos as the streaming services are sort of dethroning the media services as the most valuable things in the space. And my partners in Frederator um, uh, had a different vision of how to build the business than I was particularly interested in. It's not that their decisions were wrong. Um, yeah. It's that they just didn't really work with how I wanted to do my business. So I decided to go back to making my own decisions for better and worse. Um, so even though I left Frederator, I'm still actually executive producing a couple projects there. I'm still producing the new uh, Bee and Puppy Cat season yeah. and the latest season of Castlevania, 
Love it. Well, that, thank you. That's all due to my colleague, Kevin Coldy, who has really been the person who brought that into Frederator, championed it. It's not my, um, it's not my strength to do those kinds of projects. I don't understand them from a producing standpoint um, the way that he does. Um, but since I always thought he was amazing, we and it was even though outside of the wheelhouse of what Frederator had done, that was okay with me because Kevin is special. Um, and he's the guy who figured out one, to do the property to begin with, uh, two, to find Warren Ellis, uh, to bring him in as the uh, writing creator and co-showrunner. Um, three, to find the studio in Austin, Texas that we worked with called Powerhouse Studios. That's all been driven with Kevin at the hub of, of that and making all of those creative and, and production decisions. One thing I found really interesting about your life story uh, within media is that you always seem to trust in the people around you and give them the chance to succeed in their own right. And that seems to, I don't know, it's like this perpetual energy and motion that you give to it. I don't know if we talked about this earlier, but I think I, I mentioned that um, the big change in my life um, from being a science and math kid to doing what I do now is when the Beatles came to America, I went crazy in a positive way. And uh, what I realized actually in my late fifties is that what my work has had in common with my um, Beatle love is that I'm just a big fan. I'm a professional fan. And what was exciting to me, whether it was being a fan of Frank Olinsky when I was five years old, or being a fan of the Beatles when I was 12 years old, or being a fan of the various talents that I've worked with through my MTV career, um, my advertising and branding career, and now my cartoon career, is I just look for people that I'm so excited about their talent that I put myself in a position of saying, hey, maybe I can be helpful. And so I have been saying for the last several years that I'm a professional fan and I'm a fan with a profession. Yeah. Um, and that's worked out really nicely if I choose right. You know, I mean, it's like everything else. Um, you make your choices, sometimes you're right, often you're wrong, but hopefully you're right enough to keep yourself going. Um, and that's kind of the decisions, you know, that I've made. So I started Fred Films in August. I haven't announced it yet, even though we're talking about it here. And I've been, you know, I've been quietly public about it. Mm -hmm. um, my goal is the same goal I had when I started Frederator. My goal is the same goal that I had when I was in the music business, when I was uh, a television executive, which is to find talent that I have to work with. Not that I want to work with, not that would be nice to work with, frankly, not that would be trendy to work with. I don't know how to like follow trends. I joke all the time that instead of following trends, ultimately I figured out occasionally how to start trends. But that's because great talent, you know, the great thing about great creative talent 
is they're the only people who can see the future because they are often doing what they do because what is there isn't completely satisfying to them. And they want to do something that's, you know, past what is today. You know, what, what's the next thing really to do? And if you work with talent that has an original voice, however one wants to define voice, yeah. then you have a chance maybe to do something that will help define the future. You know, and to me, that's like really important. Kevin did it with uh, Castlevania. Penn Ward did it with Adventure Time. Uh, Craig McCracken did it with the Powerpuff Girls back in the 90s when we when we did that project. Um, on also, and you know, and then many, many other projects that I've been lucky enough to be near have all really been defined by creative talent that says, what is isn't quite enough. Here's what I think I can bring to the table. And if you're lucky, you know, not only do you feel that way, but an audience feels that way too. Um, and, you know, just like my, my Beatle fandom, I always felt that you could be top of the pops and special and artistic simultaneously. And that has always been sort of the driver for me one way or the other is to be really special artistically and be really popular at the same time. I don't find them necessarily in conflict. And, you know, sometimes you hit it, sometimes you don't. It's incredibly admirable to think that way and to believe that way because you don't, you don't meet a lot of people who do. Well, you know, I, again, I happen to be, I think, incredibly lucky that I came of creative age in the Renaissance period of the 60s, where the foment of creative result was constantly in change. And it was seen as a mainstream ideal, not just an artistic ideal. You know, I, I did spend a lot of time in the early 70s working in what we would now think of as the art music arena with avant-gardists, you know, with um, special people who saw things outside of the commercial mainstream. And I loved it. In fact, sometimes the further away from the commercial mainstream it was, the better. In fact, right now, I'm in the process of finally mixing a concert that I recorded in 1973 of the great pianist and composer Cecil Taylor um, who I had a, a couple of years of being able to work with. You know, most people will listen to a Cecil Taylor record and think that it's just elephants running on a piano, you know, <laughs> nothing that most people would want to listen to. For me, it was a window on a world that I had never seen before, you know, because I was involved in top 40 radio. I love, you know, I loved like whatever the pop music was of the day. I loved it. And Cecil was one of the people who helped me really figure out that there was more to the world than just what was popular today. Now, you know, he, um, he recently passed away, you know, in his 80s, and he was an iconoclast to the very, very last minute. Um, I don't listen to that music for pleasure too often anymore. In fact, when I listen to it, it's kind of like um, listening to Chuck Berry for me. It's like, you know, oldies, 
<laughs> you know, it's, it's like, reminds me of being a, you know, a young person, but it also reminds me of opening my mind, which is always a good thing to be, to remember. Any advice to future submitters to Fred Films uh, that you'd like to say? Yeah, um, I think the most important thing is even though we have um, concentrated generally on comedy, um, which is a common form for cartoons, we are not stylistically anchored. Um, I'm less interested in what I'm interested in and more interested in what you're interested in. Um, it doesn't mean that we will find common ground, but that's my goal. You know, the way I look at it is if you draw a circle on a whiteboard and everything in that circle is the things that you love, and there's another circle on the whiteboard is everything that I love, maybe we can find a place for those two circles to kiss. Maybe not, but maybe we can. And if we do, then maybe we can go off to the races together. You know, I'm working on a project now with a woman who as a profession is an art teacher in Brisbane, Australia. I've, I've never met her in person. Um, she, we did a short cartoon with her several years ago that I think is fantastic. We haven't found a marketplace for it yet, but in many ways, I think that's more our fault than it is her fault. Um, we're now creating a graphic novel based on her characters, um, and she's doing amazing stuff with there. And as I said to the Fred Films team this morning, which is two other people, by the way, you know, it's yeah, not a giant, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, I, was wondering. I said to them, you know, for better and worse, I'm a persistent MF, you know, like if it takes years to make it go, so be it. It took us 12 or 13 years to get Castlevania going. It took us five years to get Adventure Time going. Uh, um, wow. I don't want it to take that long, but if it takes that long, so be it. If we're into it, we're into it big and we're into it deep. Use thanks to Fred for chatting and thank you for listening to Design Talk.